Welcome to Scare Talk, a horror movie podcast for horror fans. This podcast will cover horror movie reviews, ratings, and rankings. Now for your hosts, Danny and Joel. <laughs> All right. This is Scare Talk. I am Danny, and I'm here with Jason Voorhees Joel. <laughs> hey, guys. What's up? <laughs> and we have a very special guest, uh, the writer-director of Never Hike Alone and Never Hike in the Snow. Who is we actually have... Jason Voorhees in those. So. Oh, yes, true. <laughs> <laughs> we have Vincent DeSante. Hey, guys. Uh, thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming on. This is going to be yeah. awesome. Um, so if anybody doesn't know, uh, which you should, if you're a horror fan, especially if you're a Friday the 13th fan, mm-hmm. um, Never Hike Alone and Never Hike in the Snow are both very successful fan films for the Friday the 13th, uh, franchise. Um, I believe Never Hike Alone has over 3 million views on face or on, uh, YouTube and mm-hmm. Never Hike in the snow has over a million now in about a year. So, um, Mm -hmm. doing very well. So, uh, so Vincent, um, you know, we want to ask you about all of that stuff, but, uh, can Mm -hmm. you give us some of your background and what you're currently up to? Yeah. Um, well, uh, like you guys said, my name is Vincent DeSanti. I'm a filmmaker. I live in Los Angeles, California. I'm based there now. I'm originally from Massachusetts, where I'm doing this podcast from. I'm visiting my parents for uh, the Christmas and New Year's holiday. So it's good to be back home, back where it all started. Um, for me, filmmaking really started here, like where I'm at right now. Um, and I grew up in the woods out here. grew up on a little lake, a little town called Westport, Massachusetts. Um, and I grew up loving horror films. Um, and I went to college for broadcast journalism. I ended up switching over to a film major, uh, about halfway through, uh, realizing that if I wanted to tell fiction, I might as well just make movies. So I ended up, um, studying to be a, a filmmaker, work in TV production, uh, mostly spent my time in an editing booth, learning how to edit it. Um, and then I got out of college and I had no prospects here. Um, so I ended up moving to Los Angeles in around 2008. And since then I've worked in the film industry in some way, shape or form in many different ways. Um, I got my start in feature animation, uh, where I worked on a few, uh, feature films like free birds and rock dog and another one called duck, duck goose. Um, probably spent about eight years in feature animation, which also included some time in VFX and doing commercials. Um, and towards the end of my career in, in animation was when I wanted to do live action films. I, I hadn't done one yet. Um, it's why I moved to Los Angeles, but I never, but that's not where kind of the hands of fate really took me at first. Uh, eventually I left animation to do the Never Hike Alone films, uh, which were supposed to be five minute shorts. Uh, we were going to come up with a really kind of clever idea and try to put it on YouTube and see if it kind of caught fire. And of course, you know, after about like a year and a half of working on it and doing all these things we ended up making an hour-long feature that debuted at the telluride horror show um and released online at the same time on youtube and like you guys had said has since gone on to get uh, three million views um and after that um after that happened i uh made my full transition into live action filmmaking so i started working in something called the assistant directors department 
as different things as a first AD, a second AD. Um, I've worked as a PA, uh, all sorts of things. Um, and yeah, jumped right in. I've done a lot of commercials. I've worked on Hallmark movies, <laughs> Lifetime movies. <laughs> I've also worked on uh, uh, big TV shows like The Rookie. Um, I just got done working for a show called Chad on TBS. Uh, I did a couple episodes of American Horror Stories this year, which was really cool. It was one of my first uh, horror projects that I got to work on. Um, yeah, I've just, uh, I've sort of bounced all over the globe, um, sort of doing this and with a focus on, you know, wanting to direct, wanting to write, produce, um, I run a company called Womp Stomp Films that I basically just run out of my apartment. Um, that's the company that we use to create the Never Hike Alone films and other things like we've got another one, Imagine, we have another one coming out next year called Judy, directed by a friend of mine, Renee Rivas. Um, the Pathosis film is directed by a good friend of mine, Austin Boning. I'm doing an animated uh, project called Ghost Chicken. So there's a lot of stuff that I work on in my personal life uh, that allows me to um, scratch my creative itch. And then I have my professional life, which I do a lot of logistics on set, help the, you know, basically what assistant directors do is they help get the day done. Um, we work with the director in every single department on set to make sure that when we show up to shoot five and a half pages of script, we are shooting five and a half pages of script within a 12 hour block window. And if not, we're in big trouble. So <laughs> sort of a, okay. a rundown of, of who I am and, and, and what I do. All right. Awesome. Yeah. It sounds like a lot of responsibility there for uh, making sure things get done. Oh yeah. It's, it's definitely a lot of spinning plates and for the most part, you're going around just telling people what to do, but um, having a good knowledge of each department, what they do, what they're responsible for, what the ins and outs are can really help you sort of work with everybody to get the day done versus working against departments because you don't understand how they, they're structured or how they, how they work. Um, you can often tell when, you know, those steps of film school or someone's career have been sort of looked over because they just see that department as a, oh, we just say things and things get done versus understanding the reality of the situation and what a department needs to do to get it ready for a shot. So having an understanding of that, especially from, you know, from an assistant director and a director really is a, a vital part of the job. Okay. Yeah, I can definitely see that. Um, you know, there's so much that goes into, you know, whether it be a commercial or you know, an episode of a TV show or whatever that a lot of people don't know about. And, you know, a lot of, a lot mm -hmm. of different roles that go into even a half hour, you know, feature. So, um, totally. that's, yeah, that, it's cool to learn about those things. I love having, uh, different guests on here that can give some insight to that. So awesome. Yeah. I mean, mm -hmm. yeah. When you look at the cast and everything like that, like there's usually minutes worth of like credits to, you know, not just like the actors, but to like everybody involved and, yeah. you know, how many different people it takes to, to make a project um, right. successful. So, yeah, it's, uh, and most of those people with very hyper, hyper specific duties on set that are extremely yeah. important and it really takes a village. I mean, uh, you know, films are made by at least for the most part, if you're on a film, you're, you're looking around 50 to a hundred people on set sometimes mm -hmm. um, just to get you know, certain shots done. It depends on where you're shooting. It depends on, you know, what you're shooting, how many people are in the shot. Is it a big stunt sequence? Is it a dialogue sequence? Is it, you know, whatever it may be, you're still looking at all these different departments that come together and work together in order to um, make, you know, ultimately this, 
this film that even when they're done on that day still has to go through a whole post-production process through a whole another set of teams that all are individually you know focused on either you know cutting the picture or coloring the the picture or doing the sound and doing the sound design versus the sound mix and the visual and don't even get me started on visual effects the <laughs> unbelievable amount of visual effects people and departments that go just to make one frame of film i mean it could take up to 50 people to do one frame and make it look realistic so it's you know it, it, films really are like I said, the, the product of a, of a village. It takes a village yeah. to, to make a, any type of, of product like that. Yeah, yeah, it's, that's crazy. Um, okay, so let's talk about uh, Never Hike Alone. We can start there. Mm-hmm. So Friday the 13th, why did you choose mm-hmm. that franchise to make a fan film? I mean, it came from my fandom. I mean, fan films should be made by fans. I think anyone who jumps into doing a fan film and they're not a fan of the product, it usually shows pretty much right away. Um, They don't understand the lore, they don't understand the characters, and they specifically don't understand the fans. Um, But for me, it was, like I said, like I grew up out here in Massachusetts in the woods. Kind of reminded me of the first few Friday the 13th. Um, I mean, technically I only grew up, you know, four hours away from you know, from New York and New Jersey, I probably could have driven out there if I would have known where those locations, <laughs> if I had internet when I was that young. Right. Um, but for me, it was just, I grew up loving those films. I grew up loving the Jason character. Um, it really started with me just trying to build a cosplay costume and take some good photos of it and maybe make a little bit of a short, um, just to have fun. Um, and it wasn't until we discovered an actual abandoned camp in the forest of Big Bear that, we realized that there was an opportunity there to tell a bigger story that we had the, you know, the luxury of being able to have access to a place that allowed us to have a million dollar film set. I mean, these were fully structured buildings that we could design the interiors, however we wanted. Uh, We sort of had carte blanche with the locals to just kind of go up there and do what we needed. And as long as we didn't make a mess or, destroy anything or burn anything down, they were going to basically let us do whatever we wanted. Um, and so, you know, putting it together piece by piece, it's, you know, like I said, it started as a five minute idea, uh, grew into a 20 minute idea. Um, and then the more we went up there, I would look at a new piece of set and be like, you know what, there's a scene that could happen here. We could, there's, you know, we came up with the idea of doing the red ribbons, which were callbacks to the first film um, as if those, uh, crime scenes from the first Friday the 13th from 1979, uh, you know, it was released in 1980, but from that year that if no one ever went back and no one ever cleaned up the camp, then there's a possibility that those crime scenes could remain there for all time. And mm-hmm. so we went with the notion that it was never, you know, that forest, you know, Camp Forest Green wasn't technically where Camp Crystal Lake was, that that was built somewhere else. And the original, original camp was untouched and still survived to this day. And that's that's where Jason, after all these years of being missing, had gone to hide. Okay. And that what would, well, what type of story would it be like if you happen to be hiking through the woods one day, you stumble across Camp Crystal Lake, and then you bump into Jason Voorhees, could you survive? So yeah. based on that premise... Um, we felt like we had a really good formula. You know, we sort of borrowed from the 127 hour in the Martian, mm. you know, style of filmmaking, Danny Boyle and, and um, Ridley Scott. I think that they both had a good sort of um, 
strategy for how they covered those films, allowing a character to talk to the camera. Mm -hmm. And then when they're done talking to the camera, take the camera out of their hands and then give it to the cinematographers and shoot a movie. Mm -hmm. um, you know, th there had been discussion at the time, um, or maybe a few years before I had done it, about doing a found footage Friday the 13th. And I remember being a, a big proponent against it. Um, I didn't want to see a found footage Friday the 13th film. I wouldn't even know how it would work. Um, and in the process of making this film, I sort of like realized like this is the found footage film that would work. Like this right. is how you do Friday the Thirteenth mm -hmm. found footage. You don't make it full foot full found footage all the time. You have to do something like this. And you know, based on those little, uh, based on all of that, and my love for Friday, I just started writing this story and working with my friends. And it was really just about you know five of us. It was me, um, you know, Andrew Lady who plays Kyle McLeod, Kyle Klein who was a producer, Chris Ellis who was a uh, cinematographer, J.D. Martz, who was the other cinematographer, and then a good friend of ours, uh, Jonathan Carrera, who was like our swing guy. Like he, he took care of camera stuff. He did drone stuff. He did lighting stuff. And so he was sort of all hands on deck. And from that core team, we started working every weekend on it um, and building it up until it was until we had a team of like 35, 40 people. And we were shooting out in the woods with like big 4K lights and stunt mm. pads and all these different things. And it really sort of like grew into this thing that was way bigger than we ever thought it would be. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. So, um, so in your, in your, you said that it started with like a five minute project. Um, in that five minute project, did you always have Tommy Jarvis come back? Because I just watched no, it um, again today. Um, back to back, mm -hmm. both of the movies. Um, I'd seen them previously before, but I wanted to, um, to you know, freshen up my knowledge of the movies. And towards the end of the movie, um, he's in the ambulance, and you hear one of the I forgot what her name was, but she calls for Tommy. And I was like, that's too much of a mm -hmm. coincidence to uh, have the name Tommy in a Friday the Thirteenth. Um, fan film and not have it be Tommy Jarvis. So I looked it up and yeah, it was the mm -hmm. same Tommy Jarvis from Friday the 13th part six, um, which I thought was really cool. Mm -hmm. And um, to like sort of add him into the, into the mix here. So he wasn't a, uh, an original part of, of what you saw of your vision. No, I mean, originally it was, it was really supposed to be really clean, really clean cut about, you know, a guy going into the camp crystal, into camp crystal, like running into Jason, almost getting away and then getting killed at the last minute. And in fact, I would say the opening of Never Hike in the Snow is basically the original mm. Never Hike Alone, but set in the snow. Um, same death and everything. I mean, it, the, the axe to the mouth was actually one of the first deaths I ever came up with for the series. And um, as we were penning out the film, um, you know, we started to expand it and we, we started going after crowdfunding and through crowdfunding, I met an executive producer by the name of Barry J. Um, he came on and helped us out financially, uh, really early on in the project before we were even ever funded on Kickstarter. In fact, our, our first Kickstarter, um, uh, failed. Um, and you know, between Barry, myself, my family, um, you know, everybody kind of came and chipped in and, and we raised the first $20,000 in order to shoot the first half of the film. And with the first half of the film uh, completed, we went into the, the winter months sort of, you know, trying to figure out what we had left to shoot. What You know, we had a lot of trial and error that, that fall too. So there was a lot sort of to be learned and figured out. Um, and in the process of while we were trying to figure out, Barry hit me up one day and he was like, hey, you know, I met somebody who knows Tom Matthews who's going to, you know, set me up on a, 
on a dinner with him as like a favor, just as like a fan of Friday the 13th, he agreed to sort of go out on this like fan dinner type thing and, and for, for Barry's birthday. And Barry's like, I'm going to mention Never Hike Alone. I was like, oh, that's embarrassing. Like, I'm sure he's going to hear fan film and like roll, eyes are going to roll out of the back of his head. Um, and so, you know, to Barry's credit, he went, you know, he had a dinner and at the end of the dinner he mentioned uh, Never Hike Alone. And, you know, Tom really wasn't sort of interested. And I really didn't have a part for Tom at, at that point. Um, mm -hmm. The ambulance scene was sort of in a very early stage. Uh, and I was trying to figure out how to put it together. And it was actually supposed to, if all went originally planned, like everybody would have died. And that would have been, again, the original <laughs> ending of Never Hike Alone, where everybody dies and that's the end of the story. Yeah. Um, and, you know, Tommy... Uh, but Barry didn't know this and he just pitched to Tom, hey, why don't you come meet this kid? Maybe he can find a role for you in the movie. And so um, I think Tom showed up expecting me to pitch him like, hey, I need you to be in this movie and do all these things. And I sort of was like, listen, Tom, like I got half this movie shot. I don't have enough money to go and rewrite this entire thing and weave you through it and do all these things. But here's where I think you can work. I have this, this scene I'm writing. It's going to ambulance driver. I'm thinking you play the ambulance driver. You have a cameo. Everybody dies. It's great. And he's like, well, if you got Tommy, use Tommy. And I was like, are you sure that you <laughs> want me to take control of this character? Because you know, it, it means a lot to the fans and I wouldn't want to screw it. I wouldn't want to screw it up. And he's like, nah, man, he's like, let's do it. And so, you know, he basically ended up signing on to the film because he saw the rest of the footage. He saw that we, you know, he saw the trailers and was sort of like realized that, oh, this isn't your typical fan film. There's something a little bit more here. And so what I told Tom was that we're going to keep it a complete secret. He is the sort of surprise at the end of the movie and to let him just be that. So that way he doesn't have to worry about doing too much Tommy stuff. He just has to do a little bit. He still gets one over on Jason, but his story is to be told later. And if this does well, well, maybe we can go talk to some studios and maybe we can get some stuff done and see where what goes from here. Um, so yeah, flash forward to October 17th, we released the movie and um, everybody sees Tom's in it and it was a really great day for fans, I think, um, because they weren't expecting it. I mean, I don't, first of all, I don't think that they were expecting a fan film to be even close to watchable. Yeah. Um, and yeah. the fact that it was cinematic, the fact that it had, you know, all these different things going for it. And then at the end of the movie, Tommy Jarvis shows up. I mean, I think that for them, that was a big, you know, it was a big moment. And I, you know, it was a big moment for me as, as a filmmaker and as an entertainer to be like, wow, I really did something for fans. This is something that fans won't soon forget. And I got to do something for Friday the 13th. This is really cool. It might be unofficial, but this is my favorite franchise. I've always wanted to make a Friday the 13th film. In fact, when I moved to Los Angeles, my one dream was to work on a Friday the 13th movie was, you know, whether it was getting coffee or, you know, scooping up the blood after a kill, I didn't <laughs> care whatever it was. I just wanted to be out there. You need to direct and, one of these movies once they figure <laughs> the whole court system thing out. <laughs> the rights. And isn't that and isn't that the funny thing? Because I mean, if you had ever met me before any of this, I don't think anyone would have said, "Well, Vincent DeSanti is the director of the Thirteenth film," yeah. and I would have been the guy just happy to be working on it. And it wasn't until I realized that, you know, the opportunity is not really coming anytime soon. And why don't I take this small opportunity to do something? for myself, you know, I'll give myself the opportunity to work on a Friday the 13th movie and, you know, doing that and following that put me in a position to where like, Hey, it might not happen, but more people are saying that Vincent DeSanti should direct a Friday the 13th film than ever in the history of time. So I think that sort of works. Yeah. yeah that's saying something for sure. Mm -hmm. Um, 
Yeah, what's really impressive, and we interviewed uh, Dave McRae. I'm not sure if you heard of him, but he did the uh, It's Me, Billy, the of course. Black Christmas um, you know, fan film. And I feel mm-hmm. like fan films are getting are getting pretty popular right now and you guys are kind of you know doing this cinematic experience it's not just someone on their phone making a movie it's yeah. uh it's legit like there's you know great score great sound design mm-hmm. great that location that you guys were able to come across is it's great like the uh even the inside of the buildings i'm like kind of uh you know transported back into the 80s mm-hmm. you know the, yeah. even inside the buildings i'm like okay like that uh it looks like a mess hall um that seemed mm-hmm. very familiar um even though it was you know all run down and abandoned it it still mm-hmm. felt like camp crystal lake so that was really cool well i mean it has its own you know unique design to it that camp sort of sort of doesn't match anything else from the previous films but it had it, it sort of had that spirit. Yes. And, and I remember when I first walked in there and I sort of like realized I was like, I would believe that that Camp Crystal Lake would look like this because this is so, I don't know. It's, 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 it's I can't, it's magical. Honestly, yeah, like yeah. standing in that, in that, yeah. in that room is, is a magical feeling, especially when like just the way we filmed it too, with the sun coming through the windows and mm-hmm. there's a little bit of musk in the air and you can see the beams and everything's just like been there for, for decades and that hasn't been touched. And so, you know, it's sort of like makes you feel like you're there. And, yeah. you know, I think that, that Andrew did a great job of making the audience feel like they were there. I feel like Chris and JD did a great job of making, of, of, you know, capturing the the camp in a way that was cinematic, that made it feel sort of real in that sense that, you know, it might not look like anything else from the films, but it didn't matter because in my opinion, I think that this aesthetic is probably one of the most cinematic that Camp Crystal Lake itself has ever looked. And if yes. you look at, you know, some of the Friday the 13th from along the way, they all have very specific memorable uh, sets you know the sets had very unique designs whether it be Packenack or higgins haven or the jarvis house um you know even forest green to a certain degree um you know they have a very unique shape language and so as long as there's something there in the production design world that's that's done well and it stands out it sort of helps your even though jason is always in a different place you believe that this place is real because it has a it, it has things you can recognize in that sense. Um, and so we just sort of took full advantage of that and, and did the best we could with, with, uh, the, what was, what was basically given to us by the forest. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's really, uh, you know, it's like meant to be that you guys stumbled across that place. Cause, uh, yeah, it was, yeah. I couldn't think of a better location. Um, so is, is Friday. So you got Tommy Jarvis from Friday six is that your favorite of the Friday franchise, or which one would you say is your favorite? Yeah, Friday the 13th Part 6 is my favorite Friday the 13th film by far. Okay. Um, it's the one I grew up watching the most, uh, idolizing Tom Matthews. Um, and I just love that film. I mean, it's got everything It's got everything that sort of like took it to the next level. There was, yeah. you know, bigger, it was a you know, there's a bigger production behind it, but the, you know, the ending of the film, the way Jason looked, all that stuff, it just used to scare the crap out of me. And I love the first four <laughs> films. Um, and I love Friday the 13th part five too. And I, I really love, you know, four through six, the Tommy Jarvis saga, which I could watch in like one sitting. 
um, the story of Tommy is sort of what I love the most. So like four and six are my two favorites. Um, and then you throw two in there as well are my top three. So it goes six, four, two, uh, just okay. like that. Okay. Yeah. Uh, a lot of fans love number four and then, uh, yeah, mm-hmm. Jason lives. Um, a lot of people love that one too. So man, that's awesome. Um, okay. Mm-hmm. So how did you get the cast? Were these just friends of yours or did you have to do any sort of like, you know, rehearsing or what happened there? I mean, yeah, I mean, a lot of it was just a lot of it was through friends. It was through working on other projects. It was meeting people on other projects. Um, I knew Andrew through animation. We worked on a film called Rock Dog together. He was one of my production assistants. He only worked part time. Um, He was the son-in-law of of the producer. And, you know, I I met him and he would come down a few times a week um, just to do just to help out around the office, really. Um, And we got to talking one day and both discovered that we loved horror movies. And I asked him if he wanted to make a Friday the 13th movie. He said yes and never looked back. Um, <laughs> you know, Chris and Kyle, I had met on other films. He worked as a coordinator for me a few years. Um, and of course, he, you know, as soon as I said, hey, we're going to go do this, he was down. Uh, I met Chris and John through another project, working on a friend's 48-hour film project. Um, showed them some photos of the, of the costume that I had built at the time, which wasn't the Ghost Jason costume. It was another costume, but it was a good photo. Uh, the, the costume looked decent. Um, and they were like, yeah, man, we're in, like, let's go figure something out. So from there, sort of our core little group started, um, designing everything. And we did that first trailer, which we released in May of 2016. Um, you can find it on our YouTube page. It's, you know, never hike on trailer number one. And, you know, we don't even have a ghost talk yet, but that was sort of like the original idea that launched everything was just this like really kind of like we had this we had a whole another set of cabins that we were going to shoot at we were shooting on this trail behind my house which ended up in the film anyway um and it was like i said like it was based on that five minute idea and it wasn't until we shot that first trailer that we met the people who when you watch the first trailer there are cabins that the character walks around that don't appear in the the final film oh gotcha and those are those are down the street from where we had found the other camp because the people who lived in those cabins were like, why are you shooting here? And we're like, well, you know, it's got a camp vibe. It looks really good. We didn't realize people lived here because I'd never seen anyone here. Um, but we're just filming down by the river and kind of like, you know, this little creek that was over there. Like, we're just we're not going to we're just walking around. We'll be in and out of here because most of this film takes place in the woods. And they're like, oh, no, you got to go shoot at a camp if you're going to make a Friday the 13th film. We're like, yeah, well, we don't really have the money. And it's just not that sort of film. We don't have any funding. And they're like, no, no, you don't understand. Go up the go up the road. They showed me a map. They were like, if you go right here, like this is where it is. Um, there's like a whole camp. It's all intact. And even then, I didn't believe them. It was too good to be true. You know what I mean? I'm thinking like there's going to be like the shell of a building. It's going to be covered in graffiti. Mm. It's not going to look good. Like in fact, even as like a as a rundown camp, I can't imagine uh, Camp Crystal Lake having any ounce of graffiti in there like i wanted it to be like i feel like graffiti would have made it not scary yeah like seeing graffiti means that people have come up here and got away so how right. scary could it really be yeah, you know what I mean? right. so so when we get up there and we found this fully intent yeah exactly so if if you know so when we got up there we found fully intact buildings no graffiti everything was like basically the only thing we had to do was take like they even had the um, like boards on the windows 
still covering up the windows. And so we had to take the boards off the windows so we could let light in. And as soon as we did that, like it was like the place came alive. And it was this surreal feeling. And like even walking down to like the kids' cabins and some of the other places we didn't even shoot. It was just like there's almost too much here. I wish <laughs> you know, I wish there was a way to like, you know, pare some of this down and do this or that. I mean we we literally would cut walls off of other buildings and drag them to other places to create other sets. Um, just so we can make it work and, and, and work it for the film. But it was like yeah, having the camp, like, and it was like having your own fort. I mean, that's the only way I could explain it. Like, we would go up every weekend. We had a little secret room that we kept all of our stuff in. Um, and, you know, it was a two-hour drive there and a two-hour drive back. So it was like Friday night. We got into a van, drove two hours up, jumped in our Airbnb, got up real early on Saturday morning and just started shooting. Um, and that was like that for every weekend, all, all fall of 2016. And like some weekends were big, some weekends were small. Sometimes we had 25 people, sometimes we had five people. Um, and it was just a matter of saying like, okay, what section of the script are we going to get this weekend? What are those elements that we need? And if there was any missing element that we had, it was going to our core group of friends that were helping us do this and say, do you know a stunt coordinator? Do you know a person that could do this? Do you know a person that could do that? And again, through working on other films and, you know, working with other people, you know, I met Brian Forrest, who's my stunt double for Jason Voorhees. Um, and I approached him first. I said, hey, do you want to do you want to stunt coordinate this? Because I knew he had done some stunt coordination. And he was like, no, this is above my pay grade. <laughs> like, <laughs> you're going to need someone who's like legit. And I know somebody's legit. And so I was introduced to Jessica Aaron Bennett. Um, I was introduced to Kelsey Burke uh, through a series of visual effects artists who all dropped out of the film who were like, ah, whatever. And nobody was really taking it seriously. Uh, and then this girl, Kelsey, showed up and she absolutely hit it out of the park. I mean, we couldn't have asked for anyone better. And she's like amazing at what she does and what she does right now is like she's working on you know she worked on midnight mass she worked on swamp mm. thing um, oh, nice. she's worked on the biggest films that are out there right now i mean if you go follow her on um i think it's like kay burke or something like that on, on instagram you see the stuff that she does it's insane um we were so lucky to have her and so it was a lot of that and so like basically every single role got filled that way. We all reached out and found people um, and slowly built our team. And so Momstomp Films went from me and five other people to, you know, now I could say safely that there are between 50 and 75 people on our roster that when we need to, we can access to them in any shape or form in a, any department. So it's, it's a pretty cool um, growth that we've had since, since we've gotten started in 2016. Yeah, great. Um, so speaking of, uh, Jason, uh, I mm -hmm. love what you guys did with him. Um, you played him for a good chunk of the movie, correct? Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. It's about, um, it's like 60, 40, I would say. Okay. Okay. Like when you, I mean, I do, I think I, I, I put in the years of sort of building that costume and shot a lot of stuff that didn't end up in the film, um, stuff that we cut out still. But at the end of the day, like what shots were used, depending whether or not, like I've done, I did a lot of the same shots, but sometimes it was like, no, this was the shot that was more in focus. If Brian's in the suit, Brian's in the suit, not a big deal. Yeah. Um, we really do share that role. I mean, we just make it me to make it simple and we give him the stunt credit but gotcha. just for the, just to make it like a simple clear. But, you know, verbally, I'm always like, listen, me and Brian are like neck and neck with, with screen time. It's, uh, you know, and that's the good part. You never know which who's in it. 
yeah. if we can do that, you can't tell it's like, oh, this is definitely Vinny or, oh, that's definitely Brian. Like, then we've done our job. It's like, you know, Mandalorian. And then, like, Pedro Pascal's maybe in the suit for <laughs> maybe two shots. Yeah. <laughs> Only when he takes his helmet off. Other than that, it's a stunt guy. Um, and then, like, I, you know, I would feel bad if I didn't give, you know, Brian his due anytime he does it. Because he comes in, he does a lot of the stuff that anytime there's, like, a real danger of me getting physically hurt. Um, you know, our stunt coordinator is very adamant about saying, I can't be in the costume because if I go down and I go to the hospital, that's the end of everything. Mm -hmm. yeah. You know, yeah. We can always suit me up and go if something happens to Brian, but um, let's go through Brian first. That's the reason why he's there. That's why we're paying him. So, right, right. Um, so Brian is the one who gets to kind of go in and, and do anything where like, there's like big hits, he's taking shots, jumps, um, weapon work, things like that. Like he does a lot of that stuff. And I do a lot of like the acting um, and sort of more emotional moments. Definitely mm -hmm. do a lot of that. Even though he did a lot of the work with uh, uh, Lennon for the Miss Vore he's seen in um, Never Hike in the Snow. That's actually his wife, uh, oh. which is oh, pretty wow. funny. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. That's how she see how see how we cast. We did. We just stay in house. We just stay in family. Really. Um, and so that, and then, and then I'll do something. It's like I'm the like he's so Brian is actually in Never Hike in the Snow. He plays Deputy Mabry. Okay. So obviously oh, so when him. he gets All his right. head blown off, that's me in the costume. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so that's a couple of times where you can definitely tell who's in the costume and who's not. But like we switch costumes in between scenes with Jason, and you can't tell you know who's who. So it's it's, yeah. it's a lot of fun. And and Brian and Brian's friggin' awesome at what he does. Yeah, yeah, I definitely wouldn't have been able to guess that there was multiple people um, mm -hmm. playing Jason. Mm -hmm. um, something I really liked was the sound design with uh, Jason walking around and stomping, and <laughs> yeah, so loud. <laughs> I love that. I love it. And I, I was watching cool. it with uh, headphones in, so I was getting the surround sound, um, <laughs> okay. you know, Jason walk. Um, but it's good, it's good. so it's so intimidating. And uh, I feel like, you know, there's a good amount of the Friday films where Jason just wasn't too scary. You know, he was, he was kind of mm -hmm. more of a fun character. But I feel like uh, with what you guys brought to screen, um, he, he was scarier than quite a few of the Friday films. Mm -hmm. Um, some of mm -hmm. the stuff you did with him, like in the background and some of the, like, you know, sneaking around that he was doing, um, mm -hmm. and popping up here and there when you didn't expect him, like that stuff is what makes Jason fun and good. Um, when you, you can't really see him too much and then he kind of is just there. So mm -hmm. I, I, I appreciate that. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think it's a combination of sort of like the way we made him look um, and then the scenes that we put him in, like you said, like putting him in the background, letting him slowly present himself throughout the film. And then when he is on film, he's sort of like a freight train and he's mm -hmm. coming and that there's this innate sense that this character has to get away. Like he has to keep running. He has to keep going. He has to keep fighting. He has to keep surviving. And I think in Friday the 13th, it was, just, it really got into this lull where yeah. like you establish a character, the establish does something, Jason pops out, they get hit with something, they die. The scene's over. Yeah. And uh -huh. that sort of 
relentless dread of him coming that he could be around any corner was sort of lost and and for me growing up out here you know that's how i always thought of jason was that he could be around any tree he could reach out and grab my foot while i'm hiding yeah. in a bush he could reach up and grab me out of the water if i was swimming in, on the surface of the lake and um you know where was jason going to strike next in fact the the early friday the 13th video game was very effective of that. You could yeah. just be walking along, throwing rocks at zombies when all of a sudden the screen would stop scrolling and then Jason would pop out. It would be <laughs> intensely terrifying, especially when you're like only 10 years old. So it was sort of those experiences that like I had always held as the scariest things about Jason, but very rarely saw those executed in films. Yeah. And so when doing this, there was sort of like, I was just like, legit tapping into my nightmare fuel. I was going into the places in my head that Jason scared me and coming up with scenarios that allowed Jason to come off um, intimidating and, you know, cinematic and majestic and all these mm -hmm. different things that I felt that like had sort of fallen to the wayside as he be, had become more and more of a pop culture icon. Yeah. And there was sort of like this two the, the the filmmakers were almost too aware that they were using Jason in the films rather than trying to create a scary character. They were just playing with Jason. And in my head, I was just trying to make him as scary as possible again. Yeah. Oh, that's a hundred percent. Yeah. It, Jason became a, like you said, a pop icon. And, um, now, you know, within the films that you've made, he's, he's an icon, you know, mm -hmm. you, you use him in, in that way, the, the horror way. Not just, you know, he's like a celebrity in a movie or something. Yeah. Um, oh, there's Jason. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's just, yeah. It, those movies kind of became more about, like, the gore than actually making Jason mm -hmm. be scary. And yeah. um, mm -hmm. that's what but I... But that was also the 80s, too. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. That was and the 80s was really focused around... I mean, it, <clears throat> the 1980s were the time of the visual effects artists. That's when... You know, even in the late 70s, you could say, uh, when it really started to take off. But the 80s boom of visual effects was really where, you know, a big part of our industry grew. Um, you know, the special effects industry grew immensely in, in, the in that era, especially well, within the horror world anyway, because they were allowed to do so much more than they ever were before. And so with each movie, it was always about what more can we do? What else can yeah. we do? What else haven't mm -hmm. we seen? And a lot of it, and another part of it was to like, what have we seen? What do we know works? Like, what do we know apparatuses actually are effective on screen and what aren't? And you started to see a lot of the same things because the reliable pieces of technology always found their way back to screen versus like the expensive experiment, which would go awry and not look that great. Um, and, you know, it wasn't always the same, you know, and it wasn't always a guaranteed for success. Like you could look at the fact that like how in part eight, are you making the worst face Jason has ever had? Yeah. Like when you've got seven <laughs> other films prior to you that have done it in some way, shape or form. And, and so there's a, it was it was very funny like the way that it that it sort of kind of went up and down with that depending on you know the budget and mm -hmm. who was doing the makeup and you know where the importance lies and showing that like the difference between someone like John Carl Beekler doing the makeup and I, I feel bad because I don't know the effects makeup artist for for part six off the top I mean part uh, eight off, off the top of my head but you see a degradation of of work you know. 
Um, mm -hmm. Even though there are some cool things in part eight, it's just that, you know, in part seven got cut down to the bone. And so you're mm -hmm. probably, you know, you probably think about the producers thinking about it like, well, if they're going to cut out all the effects, why are we paying all this money for the effects? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> sure. Yeah. You know, like, those are the conversations that happen. And, and like the, the producers aren't really thinking about what the fans want. All the producers need to do is stay on budget. They need right. to stay on schedule, and that's all they really care about. They're not, they're not emotionally or, um, you know, fans emotionally invested or fans of, of of the product. They just know that the product makes money, and they got to churn out another thing. You know, the kids will love it type stuff. Right? Um, they don't. They don't think about it. They don't think that like there was ever going to be a YouTube where we analyze every single frame of a film <laughs> and then talk about it after hours on end. Um, you know, people used to just watch these films in 480p, <laughs> right. yep. you, know, yeah. you know, before any type of HD and they could get away with so much. And so it's kind of funny when you go back, like I always laugh, my friend always gets, um, always brags about like, oh, I got the new 4k restoration of like some eighties horror <laughs> film. And I'm like, you, you're going to ruin it. <laughs> like you're going to see all the strings. <laughs> it's everything. The, the texture of the makeup's going to look awful. Like they got away with it because it was on VHS. Like don't, don't give it any more than it already has from DVD. So you can never pause the VHS. It's always like really fuzzy and just yeah. So there's only yeah, you got like five lines going through the screen like squiggling. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. Yeah, that's so true. Um. All right, so yeah, my my favorite scene in uh, Never Hike Alone is definitely uh, the ambulance scene. Uh, you know, throwing mm -hmm. throwing Tommy in there, um, kind of connecting Never Hike Alone with the Friday franchise. Um, so, mm -hmm. in your mind, in your vision, when does Never Hike Alone take place? Is it like modern day? Are you taking out like yeah. Friday eight or seven or within the franchise? When does this so, take place? Uh so this would be like a series retcon of everything that's after New Line started. So it's basically eliminating all the New Line films because they diverted so far hard from the original canon. Um, as crazy as 7 and 8 are in the series for Paramount, it still feels like a part of the same storyline. It feels like an extension of the previous movie. It picks up right after the previous movie. You see those connections and it feels connected. And Jason Goes to Hell for me was the first movie in the, in the franchise that I ever felt like it disconnected so far from the original from the originals and sort of like the original formula that i didn't it didn't feel like a friday the 13th no. to me like it is a friday the 13th film it is a canon film obviously but i was like whatever happened to that other jason because this direction i do not like and i always wanted to see sort of like i wish i could go back and, and continue the story from there and you know friday the 13th had been around the it's been around the world so many times at that point um, as far as like telling all these different stories and, you know, the continuity and, and the logic and a lot of those things. So I think for me, it was sort of like, as long as those events happen in some way, shape or form one through eight back in like from, and if you follow the original timeline, which starts in 1979 uh, with the first film, well, technically 1957, but 1979. And then you take it up to about 2001, 2004, I think is when, um, I think 2001 is when technically Jason Takes Manhattan mm. takes place, um, believe it or not, even though okay. it's definitely set in the 80s. Um, <laughs> but timeline-wise, it was sort of like, let's not take the films too seriously. Let's just take the films as markers in time. And then 
that was sort of the last time anyone ever saw Jason. And Jason sort of learned his lesson and went into hiding. Mm -hmm. And what happens if Jason really started to get better at hiding like he was in Friday the 13th Part 2 and sort of came back to Crystal Lake. Obviously, at the end of Part 8, he's flushed out to sea. He's lost his mask. He's lost his clothes. He's, he's a completely, he's a, he's a blank canvas. And he's this rotting corpse that returns to Camp Crystal Lake, uh, you know, sullenly defeated and has to rebuild his life and sort of like, you know, rediscovers his mother's head, finds new clothes, finds a new hockey mask, and then has a new edict in life, which was, I'm going to stay out of sight. I'm not going to go after anybody unless they, they force me to, because I don't want to die again for the 50th time. Like <laughs> I've died 10 times. Uh, I've been burned. I've been stabbed. I've been hung. I've been shot. I've been all these different things. And none of it has stopped me. None of the, none of it has stopped this madness of this curse of me having to wake back up and teach these kids a lesson every single time that always ends with me getting back put in the earth and getting shot up and doing all these things. It's like, I'm sick of it. Like I'm old man, Jason now, like this is enough, like toxic waste. Like what's the next, what's the next step? Right. Right. <laughs> so you can imagine that like, you know, so we made that disappear music video, um, which is a part of our, our, our master cut, the ghost cut, which opens up the film. And it's sort of like Jason sort of coming to grips with the fact that this really is never going to end that like this cycle of violence, this, you know, this edict that I have from my mother to continue on the curse and to carry on the death curse is never going to stop. And that it's not fulfilling me. Like it's not bringing my mother back. I'm not allowed to move on and I'm just creating death and destruction wherever I go. Maybe I am the problem. And so, you know, Jason sort of like starts to sit out and it is, and you know, over the years you can imagine that every now and then someone goes missing and that's sort mm -hmm. of, where the story of Never Hike Alone came from, which was now I want to start telling stories about the people who go missing and don't come back. What right. happened to them? When does Jason win? And um, that's really about what Never Hike in the Snow is about. Never Hike in the Snow is, is an instance of like this. These are all the things that need to take place for an order for Jason to exist. Mm. That, mm -hmm. you know, he needs to be hidden, um, that no one can get away, that he can stay hidden from Tommy and that the police... Um, don't believe in him. And so if all of those elements can, can remain a focus up until Never Hike Alone, you can imagine that there have been several Mark Hills over the last two decades. But it just so happens that when we get to the Never Hike Alone story, that what makes Kyle McLeod such a special character in the Friday the 13th world is the fact that he's the first one to get away. Mm. And like he's the first survivor in the modern age. And, you know, and that's sort of going to undo everything that Jason has built over the last two decades of, of staying hidden and staying off the radar. And now all of a sudden, you know, the band-aid's been ripped off and Jason sort of has to return to his original form after that moment. But until then, what he's protecting is his secrecy. And when he no longer has a secrecy, that's when he's got nothing else to lose. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. So... Um, speaking of Never Hike in the Snow, um, this is a prequel, if I understand correctly, to Never Hike Alone, mm -hmm. correct? Okay. That's correct. Yeah. yeah. Um, I gotta say, I think I'm more of a fan of Never Hike in the Snow. Um, mm -hmm. I love them both, but yeah, I like, I like some of the character development that you went with, with, uh, Snow. Um, you got Thank to you. know some of the other characters, um, you know, the, the sheriff, um, Tommy is in there and he's, you know, seen as this crazy guy who still thinks Jason is, you know, killing people and all this. 
Um, I like the mm-hmm. uh, chemistry between the characters. Um, you know, there's more than basically one character in Jason um, in mm-hmm. Snow, and, and it's only a half hour. So you, you really pack in a lot in a short amount of time. Um, mm-hmm. And the transitions <laughs> from scene to scene are really cool. I, 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 thought, I was pretty impressed with that, yeah. I was just going to say that it's amazing how how long fans of the franchise have been wanting a Jason in the snow type of a movie. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's been it's been demanded for years. And mm-hmm. we got we got a Jason goes to hell and a Jason in space before we got a Jason <laughs> in the snow. And it's like, all right, well <laughs> one's probably a lot easier than the other ones. You could have just done the snow one first. Um and then we also got yeah. a weapon used that we've I don't think ever seen Jason used, which was a bow and arrow in the beginning of that movie. Which was a, a nice a nice touch as well. Like I, I like that. <laughs> um, he's you know, using yeah um, more than just his machete to, to kill people with. So, <laughs> in fact, I think he doesn't even. I mean, our Jason doesn't even. He he uses a machete at one point to fight Kyle. Yeah. But he mm-hmm. and he lands a blow on Kyle with a couple blows with it. But he you know he mostly uses the axe to kill. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and obviously, I mean, we've seen also seen him. You know, we also see him use a shotgun. <laughs> So, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Which technically, I mean, he doesn't use it. He he makes the guy turn that shotgun on himself, and by the time he pulls the trigger, it's already under his chin. But yeah, um, but I think you know to jump into that, like Never Hike in the Snow was definitely like. First of all, thank you. I mean, Never Hike in the Snow was a lot of work. Um, we had a lot more funding on that one, and a lot of people were like, "What do you mean you didn't make a, a feature film?" It was like, "Well, the reason why we didn't make a feature film is we took all that funding and put it into every single frame of this film." I mean, mm-hmm. with Never Hang in the Snow, the go the goal was to up the production value of the entire production, every single frame. Nothing like Never Hike in the Snow and Never Hike Alone, which is hey, is still great. Um, and we were able to do a lot of things with like low budget, low budget cameras, um, you know, no crew, you know, no, you know, we didn't really have much to do. Like this time we had to shoot in the snow, which was a big challenge. And, you know, it kind of started with the fact that like, Hey, you know, we've never seen Jason in the snow before. We still have a lot of work to do on this Never Hike Alone 2 idea. I'm still trying to pitch it to the studios. I'm still trying to kind of do these other things. But in the meantime, we can make this snow short. That could be a fun exercise. And, and, you know, let us try some things out that show people that we can do not just like the singular found footage thing, but we can tell actual, you know, story development. Let's let's make a pilot episode. Like, let's focus mm-hmm. on making a good pilot. Let's introduce all these different characters. And that will launch the Never Hike Alone series. And you might give us a chance to, like, you know, run run headfirst into a meeting and maybe turn this into an actual series on HBO Max or something. Mm -hmm. And so with that, we, you know, I I really kind of outlined it with that in mind of the fact that it would be um, sort of like this, you know, that was, you know, it was half hour. So we knew that we could spend that, you know, we took the money and said, all right, how much is it going to do the ax in the mouth gag? How much is it going to do this? How much is it going to do that? We were looking for around 50, Fifty to sixty thousand dollars in crowdfunding, so we could spend about maybe thirty to forty on set. Uh, we ended up raising about a hundred thousand dollars, so that allowed us to add a couple of scenes. Um, uh, you know, at the end of the day, I think what people need to know is that like we raised a hundred thousand dollars, but ten thousand dollars off caught right off the top. Um, that went to that went to Indiegogo. So we started with ninety thousand dollars, and then about thirty thousand dollars of that if not more, went into the crowdfunding materials. So building the Blu-rays, um, shipping the things all over the world, uh, 
it, it never stops and there's post-production there's all these different things so it wasn't like we had you know a full hundred thousand dollars to work with we had a good like we actually had the same amount of money that we had for never hike alone but mm -hmm. we were able to turn that into but now we also had multiple actors that were sag that we did have to pay we had crew that we did have to go out and pay because it was certain things that they needed to do that you know we were basically hiring on extra hands to help out and we had our small crew that that wasn't you know the full-time crew that that doesn't take any money but there are people that we hire on to be like listen we want you on this project because we want to give the fans the best you know the best product that we can so we're going to hire fringe people that run specific departments so that way we have that that quality on set and we'll fill it in like we'll save money by doing a lot of this work for free and i'll invest it now in you know this piece of of um special effects and going out to people like the people who did the teeth for um for little young baby Jason, that was the same guy who mm. did the teeth, the same exact guy who did the teeth for uh, Pennywise in the new It. Oh wow! Um, wow. wow. You know, yeah. I mean, these. I mean, we're not just getting like, <laughs> like yeah. some guy off the street. Like we're going after the people that are working on some of the biggest films in the industry, and they're working on our projects. The guys who built the blood rig for Never Hike in the Snow and Never Hike Alone, who did the exploding head, uh, this guy Corey, um, he works on Halloween movies. Mm. And he builds the blood rigs for the Halloween kills and Halloween ads and all that stuff. And so, you know, we work with people and we, you know, they give us discounts and we're able to sort of build these different things and, and weave story around it. Um, you know, and I think for me, like everything for Never Hike in the Snow was based upon that opening kill. Yeah. Um, the original idea was just to maybe raise $10,000 and just do the opening kill and call it a day. And it wasn't until I started to think about that sort of like, oh, wow, like we're killing this guy, but it's kind of sick when you think about it, right? I mean, this is somebody's yeah. wife. I mean, this is somebody's husband. This is, you know, at the time we were like, this could be somebody's husband. This could be somebody's boyfriend, blah, blah, blah. And then, you know, as I started to push the pieces around, I was like, no, this is somebody's son. Mm -hmm. This is some kid. Like, imagine if it's some kid, like, what's the fallout of this? And like, what happens? And if this guy goes missing, you know, this kid goes missing. Um, what has to happen in order for Jason to get away with this? And, mm -hmm. and what happens for Jason to get away? Because obviously there's like evidence left behind. And so it allowed us to like introduce the Rick Cologne character, you know, which is also from Friday the 13th part six. I was introduced by Vinny to Vinny through Tom after we made Never Hike Alone. Um, became really good friends with Vinny and asked him to be a part of it. So to bring his character back in again adds to that sort of realism of of the story that we're telling that this really does feel like crystal lake 20 years later after the events of never hike i mean of uh, of jason lives yeah. and that these are events that then like these events happened in between and these are legit story arcs for these characters and we're connecting them piece by piece and so far you know we told kyle's story um in the second film we told um you know in the prequel we're telling sort of vinnie's story and Mark's story and Jason's story, sort of like these three, you know, we're setting up the Diana character for her thing. And then in Never Hike Alone 2, it's sort of like, it's all Tommy's perspective. Mm. And then we get to sort of see like what Tommy's been dealing with for 20 years and why he is sort of the way he is and, you know, how, you know, why he got this job as an ambulance driver and, mm. and all these different things. But like for the fact that like, we'll meet Tommy in a time before he meets Kyle McLeod and to realize that you know, the events of Never Hike in the Snow still haunt him and everything still haunts him. Jason still haunts him, but he can't find him. He's like, 
Sasquatch. Like every time he goes into the forest, Jason's nowhere to be found. And if he tries to tell anybody that Jason exists, he's just called crazy Ralph. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? Like he's turning into another crazy Ralph and he's realizing slowly that if he continues down this path, that, you know, it could all be over for him. And, um, and so he sort of has to sort of keep to himself and he, you know, he sticks to himself. He's quiet. And then one day he gets a call to be out, you know, to go pick up a lost hiker in the middle of the forest. And lo and behold, there's Jason and, yep. you know, the whole world comes crashing down around him. And, you know, after years of saying, you know, the, you know, the wolf is in the woods, all of a sudden the boy comes home crying wolf and, mm -hmm. you know, he's got how, how many hours to get ready for Jason to basically, you know, attack everyone in town and, you know, take out as many people as he can. So that's the uh, idea for Never Hike Alone 2. Yes, yeah, so Never Hike Alone that? 2, uh, yeah, is that, which was supposed to be three different films. Um, we were going to do it as a series, and then, you know, the pandemic hit right after we got done filming Never Hike in the Snow and sort of brought everything to a standstill. Um, and as we started to regroup, we realized that, like, probably the best thing to do is um, is put those films all back together because it was originally just one film, and we sort of broke it up to kind of do the pitching and, and kind of go through that process. And obviously, like, the, the, the lawsuit, like, <laughs> made it impossible. Like, we did get to pitch. You know, I did pitch it to a few different people. Um, I did sit down with some different production companies and, you know, some distribution people and you know, got to shoot my shot for Friday the 13th, which is pretty cool. I mean, I sat in an office at Warner Brothers and was like, hey, wow. here's what I think. Um, and, you know, it went over really well. I mean, I had a lot of people say, like, obviously, they, I literally got told in the Warner Brothers office, they were like, if we were ever going to do this, you were definitely the person who needs to do it. Um, nice. You know more about this than anyone that I know. And I was just like, thank you. <laughs> and, you know, but they said, but unfortunately, there's a lawsuit going on and there's nothing we can really do with it. And our mandate is to not touch anything Friday the 13th until we know but you know we got you on file and if anything ever comes up we'll give you a call so awesome. um you know i just got sick and tired of waiting honestly um and i felt like this was now the time to do it i have tom i have Vinny. they're not getting any younger i'm not getting any younger i got bills to pay i can't like keep taking off mm -hmm. months of time from mm -hmm. work to to do this and you know if i'm going to do it i got to do it now so so i started to sort of redevelop it you know over over this past year um, knowing that like, you know, I, I still had, um, from the pandemic, we had long delays for getting the Never Hike in the Snow Blu-ray out. Um, there were sh material shortages. I had to wait extra months for all these different things. I was holding out to try and get the original clear cases that I wanted to get and they never showed up. And, you know, it was just one thing after the next. And then there were 3,500 Blu-rays to ship around the world. Um, which again, that was probably 16 to, to $20,000 worth of, of, uh, of shipments, yeah. um, because of, because of international shipping, because of, you know, things that come back and get returned and all this sort of things. So, it, you know, it, it, no, not 16, I think that was about 10. So it was about $10,000 extra that we had to hang on to, you know what I mean? So it wasn't, again, it's like we raised that money. But we have to be very careful with the way we spend it because, I mean, even a year and a half after we release the film, we still need part of those funds to get those things shipped out. So um, once we got finished shipping those Blu-rays, that's when it opened up the ability for us to be like, okay, now we can step into looking at um, Never Hike Alone 2. We actually did a version of the films where cuts disappear 
never hike in the snow and never hike alone into one master uh, mm. film um, and actually adds a couple extra bonus scenes called the ghost cut, which we just released on Blu-ray, which I've been working on that um, over the break as well. So while I'm working on the never hike, I mean the, the never hike alone ghost cut Blu-rays have also been rewriting uh, never hike alone too. So it can be, um, it can be a feature that, that fits within a good budget that fan that we think we can raise um, and then turn around and give us the, the ultimate story arc that we want to conclude the story of Tommy and Jason and Kyle and Diana and Vinny. So, um, yeah, my, my question was um, mainly about the lawsuit <laughs> situation mm-hmm. because um, I mean, here it depends on the type of lawsuit it is, but typically um, you can use a fan, you can, you can make a fan film, um, but you can't really mm-hmm. use the names of Jason. You can't really like use the names that are associated with the project or the series themselves. So, um, do you know, like, how, what, what went into that lawsuit? Like, how are you, um, able to basically use, basically use everything? You're basically making a Friday the 13th movie, Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. using, you know, the, the same names of the, of the people, of the characters in the Mm -hmm. series, um, while this lawsuit's going on about who's going to take over Mm -hmm. (laughs) the whole um, the whole series and everything. So I was just kind of curious about the whole process there. Like, honestly, um, it's really it really comes down to the to the license holders. So the the lawsuit that's going on and what we're doing are like two different things. Uh, fan films fall under something called fair use. Um, which, you know, something so pop, pop culturally known that like, it's kind of hard for people not to talk about it or reference it or, you know, make fan films of it. You know, as long as we're not making a profit off of it, as long as we're not taking it to, you know, I'm not selling it to Warner brothers and saying, Hey, here you go. Give me a million bucks for never hike alone. Now go put this in theaters and go and we'll make money off of it. While the people actually made Friday the 13th get paid nothing that it it can't work that way. That that's, Mm -hmm. That's what they don't want to happen. As far as like people creating a Friday the Thirteenth fan film, sticking it on YouTube for people to watch it for free, um, really doesn't hurt anybody. And so, when it comes to fan films and the rules of fan films, um, there are a few of them. Um, I won't I won't go too deep, but it's basically just like don't pretend that you're the the product you're portraying. Like make sure it's clear this is a fan film. Mm-hmm. So if you do that. That's a really good first step. Don't make profit off of it. And when I say profit, I mean actually having money left over at the end. Like if you want to raise $75,000, $100,000, $200,000 to make a film, go good for you. Just make sure that at the end of filming, you've spent every last dollar and that, you know, the fans get what they want. Um, if, you know, you say the film's not finished, but all of a sudden you're going on a vacation to Tahiti, people might start asking questions. <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, there's that. I mean, and then there's, you know, d- depending on what um, franchise you're working on, like Star Trek, like in Star Trek, they have to be, you can't raise over $50,000. There's different rules, but it really comes down to who owns the franchise and how do they feel about fan films. And so quoting Steve, um, not Steve, oh yeah, Steve Cunningham and Victor Miller, when it comes to fan films, they legit do not give a shit. <laughs> they do not care. They, they, they don't understand them. They're like, you guys do whatever you want. It's your bag. They're just worried about the actual films and the films that make money. And so 
the basic lawsuit for anyone who doesn't know what happened on Friday the 13th is basically there's a statute um, in the WGA, the Writers Guild of America, that allows a writer that after, I think it's 35 years have passed since the original uh, project has been released. So in this case, Friday the 13th, the original film, as the writer of that script, he can appeal to regain the rights of the characters and rights of the film um, after that 35th year, um, as long as there are certain things that are in place. Um, and so he did that. And um, Sean Cunningham sued him to say, no, you can't do that because you were work for hire, which basically says, like, I came up with Friday the 13th. I hired you to write Friday the 13th, and you wrote that for me, and I own it. And so I think because what happened was Sean could never produce the paperwork that said Victor was work for hire. So the judge had to default to say that Victor had written this script on his own called The Long Night at Camp Blood um, and that he was owed, you know, any time a film gets made in the United States, the domestic rights of Friday the 13th and the characters of Jason Voorhees, the young boy who drowned, Pamela Voorhees, the mother who returned to, you know, avenge her, her dead son and the characters of camp of, of camp crystal lake see christy and all that but he now reowns all those characters and the title friday the 13th how i i don't know because everybody knows that sean cunningham came up with friday the 13th he put it in the back of a variety ad you know to raise the money he raised mob money to make the movie um and basically paid victor to write this script so he could shoot this film and try to make a, a quick buck off of it mm -hmm. um but lo and behold, the, the, the courts have only seen it one way. And they've ruled in Victor's favor um, twice now um, in both circuit courts. Um, I think Sean appealed. Um, I think he's going to appeal again. And so this sort of, this, this lawsuit has, because there isn't somebody that you say like, okay, who owns what? And... Mm -hmm how does the money get split up there is no final agreement on that so even though both lawsuits have now been done they both you know you know finished in um we were both decided in, in victor's favor um now there's sort of like this we're in this gray area where they have to come to a settlement to figure out like how much of the piece of the pie that victor gets from this because obviously jason Voorhees is not the young boy who drowned and is living at the bottom of Camp Crystal Lake. He is a, an undead killing machine that comes back from the dead. And now it has a hockey mask and all this stuff. So, so Victor doesn't own that stuff. And like the Friday the 13th rights are so split and divided. And Sean is really driving a wedge in between it all because he doesn't think that Victor has earned sort of that keep, which I mean, at the end of the day, whether or not technically Victor was there, you know, when he coined Friday the 13th, you know, obviously Victor wasn't there when he put Friday the 13th in the back of the variety ad. But mm -hmm. what Victor did do for him was write a script that he didn't have before. Right. He came up with characters that he didn't have before. He set up the platform for Sean to succeed. Sean did everything else. Sean directed the film. Yeah. Sean produced the film. Sean saw that the film got made. He's the one who got the money. Um, you know, without Sean, none of it happens. Without Victor... It doesn't happen that specific way, mm -hmm. right? I mean, that yeah. doesn't tell that specific story. Because let me tell you, Sean Cunningham was going to make anything that was put down in front of him and call it Friday the 13th. It right. didn't matter. You know what I mean? Like that was just it. Um, but it just so happened that it was it was Victor's story. And so, you know, 
I think after all these years for what Victor created and, um, you know, what's to say he isn't, he isn't deserving of, of, uh, of a payday like Sean got. So I think that like, there's a little bit of animosity there, but I mean, if you ask me, like you're, you're taking out the, when, when these two argue over who owns what, they're really counting out the fact that Steve Miner was the one who came up with Jason as we know him Mm -hmm. today. Um, you know, Joe Zito and, and Barry Cohen came up with the Tommy Jarvis character, you know, Tom McLaughlin and what he gave to the films, the fact that Kane Hodder and, and um, uh, John Carl Beekler and, and what they did with part seven and taking Jason to that next level and Kane taking the role and going to all those conventions over the years and growing the legend of Friday the 13th and, you know, even Rob Heaton taking Jason to Manhattan and, and you know, taking Jason to hell and the space and all, and all these different things that sort of like created Jason. Like Jason isn't just Friday the 13th part one. Friday the 13th is Jason one through 12. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like there's 12 films that all say something very different about Jason that are all very unique in their own style and create a different diverse and fan base that, that, you know, you talk to people. Yeah. A lot of people like think, think about it now. Like you just asked me like, what's your favorite Friday the 13th part six? You know I mean? <laughs> like, like part one, part one barely cracks the top half of my, yeah. my list. So yeah, like yeah. for these guys who, yes, they deserve the credit for everything that they did. You know, at the end of the day, I feel like, even though they created the, the the wave that they started, they don't understand it. And they mm. don't understand it even the way some of the other filmmakers in the franchise do, and they especially don't understand it the way the fans do. Um, and honestly, if, if either one of them were left in charge of a Friday the 13th that was made in the modern era, I don't think that it would yeah. connect with fans in any way, shape, or form. And they would make it so clearly different, thinking that they were thinking outside the box, that they would once again, at risk of killing the franchise once again. Yeah. Yeah. Man, well, that's a nice little uh, Friday Thirteenth background story there. I appreciate yeah. that. <laughs> I wasn't expecting a whole, uh, <laughs> yeah, that's, whole speech on yeah, that. Yeah, and, and definitely, I would definitely suggest that um, if anybody has any questions about the the franchise, that um, Larry Zerner, who played uh, Shelley in Friday the Thirteenth Part Three, is actually an entertainment lawyer. He's on Twitter. He always posts about the Friday the Thirteenth franchise, and if you go back through his history. Um, and if you look up some stuff on, on YouTube, I think he's done some, some interviews. Um, in fact, I would encourage that you guys maybe reach out to him yourselves uh, and find him and, and do an interview with him if you really want to go in depth. And he can really okay. explain the legal um, sort of the actual, I'm sort of like glancing over it because I barely know how to describe it. He knows the specific things that are going on and why things don't work the way they work and what deals have to be made and, and all that stuff. He, I definitely suggest you guys talk to him sometime. Okay. Yeah, definitely got to do that. What was his name? Larry Zerner. Larry Zerner. Okay. Let me write that down real quick. Yeah, Shelly from part three. The guy. Okay. I mean, the, the guy who gave Jason his mask. So, I mean. Gotcha. Oh, why doesn't okay. Larry get some. Yeah. Yeah, seriously. Yeah, the yeah, mask. So, I mean, the. So, Victor basically just made the. Um, made the story for part one. Right, which is that's correct. Completely different story yeah. from the entire rest of the series. Like it takes that it takes Jason into a whole whole other whole other realm. So I mean, yeah, pay him you know something to to get him off your back a little bit. But it's like you know he doesn't really, um, you know I I give him something for it you know. But um, ultimately mm-hmm. it, it should be Sean's um, series, Sean's franchise for sure. Um, yeah, but you know, even then, it's it's still like I said, like Steve Miner's the one who came up with Jason as we know. Yeah, him. right, right. Um, mm-hmm. 
you know, without without Shelley giving him that mask, I mean, it's Friday the Thirteenth as big as it is today. I, mean, oh, I can't, yeah. I, I can't yeah. imagine. I can't imagine so. And so, I think that, like, if anything, it's sort of stepping back and realizing that, like I said at the beginning, like films are made by a village of people. Um, most of those people get paid an hourly wage and then never see another dime after they get done working on the film, even mm -hmm. though they're really the ones that, without it, the film can't be made. Yeah, I mean, producers are there to raise the money and all those things, but not, they're not the ones busting their asses out there to actually execute what's on the page. So, you know, there's a real discrepancy in, in the film industry about, like, what people get paid um, and who really benefits in the end from, from a film when, you know, at the end of the day, who's really putting in the blood, set and blood sweat, and tears to get it done, and then who's just mm -hmm. kind of sitting back and cashing yeah. the checks. Yeah, yeah, good point. Um yeah like the it's interesting like if you even like some pretty strong horror fans and just your casual horror fans you you know ask them who's the killer in friday the 13th part one a lot of people are gonna say jason <laughs> that's just that's just yeah. what people know of friday the 13th it's jason mm -hmm. and so like you said you know uh steve minor he deserves some of that credit too as uh mm -hmm. you know he created jason that that we know right now and um you know i was uh it's funny i was wearing a uh, michael myers mask um to a halloween party and someone came up to me mm -hmm. and they're like oh you came as jason it's <laughs> mm -hmm. like you know i think everybody just thinks horror is jason you know any of the slasher icons is jason it doesn't matter who it is <laughs> that's the first name that comes to people's heads it's, yeah it's, it's he's yeah. just so iconic yeah and, you know it's just it's it's really a shame that there aren't any movies out right now or like you know with halloween kills coming back out and chucky's got a revival yeah. hellraiser's yeah. coming back you know there's talk about nightmare on elm street and it getting a new chance um yeah, Exorcist. You know, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, a new, <laughs> yep, a new film, a new Exorcist. I mean, Texas Chainsaw Massacre is getting its own game and a film. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so it really is, it really is sort of a shame that in this like new slasher boom, and this renaissance of new remakes of like you know because we had that that period where Friday the Thirteenth got remade last yeah. time, and honestly, yeah. I think that the Friday the Thirteenth remake was the first thing that sort of killed Friday the Thirteenth. It did so mediocrely that you know there wasn't any incentive for Paramount to give money to it because Paramount is not in the business of making tens of millions of dollars. Paramount is in the is in the business of making hundreds yeah. to billions. Mm -hmm. Yeah. If you're not making a hundred billion, a hundred thousand, a hundred million dollar profit, Paramount really has no use for that film. You know, I think around the time that. Um, you know, towards the tail end of, of the remakes, because the first horror remakes were, were pretty good. I mean, you had like Texas Chainsaw Massacre and a few of those mm -hmm. that did, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars and, and did really well in the box office. And then you, you know, you look at the way that Friday the 13th did and you think that it would do so much better. Yeah. And it really didn't. And from, you know, from a, a, a studio standpoint, um, they're looking at these investments of these $25 million films that they're making. Like, never, I think it was, um, uh, 2009 was, I think, a $19 million budget. You're probably looking at another 20 to 25 in P&A. Mm. Um, you know, they marketed the hell out of that thing. So you, you're looking at them spending between fifty and $60,000 before they even take it to the theater. Yeah. Um, 
and to put it in as many theaters as they did, how much that cost and all these different things. So by the time they're recouping the cost, I mean, they probably recouped their cost in home video sales, but they really expected Friday the 13th to bring home $100 million, $200 million payday, and it didn't. Yeah. Um, and so they went back to the drawing board on it. There was no immediate sequel. They had to go back and scrap that one. Um, they went to the found footage area, and, you know, unfortunately, um, not only were they having trouble finding their footing in, in in the found footage world, um, Paramount itself was under a lot of turmoil. So during that time, you had a lot of people at the higher up level coming and going, hired and fired. Um, and every time someone was hired and fired, the direction for Friday the 13th changed. Yeah. Um, in fact, I remember hearing a story, uh, Brad Fuller, who was the producer at Platinum Dunes in charge of um, Friday the 13th, even talked about, said that he dragged his feet during the found footage uh, version because he didn't want that one to get made. <laughs> so you have like internally people dragging it down because they don't want to make that. And they went to go make Friday the 13th 3D. Uh, both the the found footage and the 3D one were both going to be directed by a filmmaker by the name of David Bruckner. Um, there's a there's a film there's a film podcast called The Greatest Movies Never Made where Bruckner talks about the Friday the 13th that he wanted to make, and the script is floating around out there too. If ever anyone ever wants to read it, um, I honestly think that that was the best chance Friday the 13th had because it was a true blue Friday the 13th, which is about kids at camp. Jason comes back starts murdering a bunch of people and they can't put him down and that's basically the film so (laughs) it was perfect it didn't it didn't try to do too much it didn't try to do what what the remake did which was reground him and try to make him human again and then undo it and like get really muddy with the details it was just like super simple um and and i loved it but they didn't end up making that film they actually scrapped that idea brought on another filmmaker by the name of breck eisner who did the crazies and he had a version that was really out there it had elias in it it had pamela in it it had jason in it jason doesn't show up to a page like 69 oh, wow. um, and it was just a really odd duck of a film um, i read that script too and in fact it was supposed to come out in 2017 it was slated for october 13 2017 and in january of 2017 that film was canceled after the failure of rings 2 so as i was saying before rings 2 which was about a 25 million dollar film friday the 13th 2017 was supposed to be about a 25 million dollar film paramount said no more 25 million dollar (laughs) films you got blumhouse over here making sub five million dollar horror movies and killing it yeah like Mm -hmm. that's what we want or we're just going to make lord of the rings or something you know interstellar or whatever else they were going to make um they wanted big budget hollywood temples that were going to make hundreds of millions of dollars because the studio needed to make that much money it wasn't going to survive off of friday the 13th making 10 million dollars for them. so they um they completely scrapped the film and that was really when we were in the middle of never, making never hike alone like we were smack dab in the middle of never hike alone we had half of the film mm-hmm. done i had just signed tom matthews and then all of a sudden you know it was all over the wire friday the 13th is canceled and i was like "Fuck that <laughs> like friday the 13th didn't cancel right <laughs> like we're gonna we're gonna release never hike alone on friday the 13th and we're gonna have, might not be a 20 20 million dollar film but i bet you i'll do something in this film that will do something that film could never do yeah and let's make fans happy and so that became the challenge and that was that was what i did and i focused and you know really kind of like put my nose to the grindstone that year and um you know in 2017 on october 13th you know there was a friday the 13th that got released and it had tom matthews in it as tommy jarvis so um you know i would say that like the failures of friday the 13th 
as much as I, I hated to watch them happen, did open up the opportunity for me to make Never Hike Alone and for it to be as successful as it was because it opened the door wide open for us. Yeah. And we took advantage. And, you know, you can, you know, there are fans out there who love us. There are fans out there who hate us, who think that, like, how can they do this? They should be sued. And, you know, this, that, and oh, the other wow. thing. I'm just sitting there like, do you, like, hate fun? <laughs> are you just mad that this exists? Like, right. I'm sorry. Like, but hey, I could have, like, taken that money and like gone on vacation like i could still be working in animation right now and, and yeah. doing all this stuff and like we could not have like if i didn't do this quite frankly i don't think that there is another friday the 13th fan film out there that would have been challenged enough to even try to reach what we did we would have mm -hmm. got a lot more of the same and these fan films would have flown under the radar um people probably wouldn't have known they existed and when they watched them would think that they're pretty typical fan film fare. And yeah. I think that, you know, Friday, you know, when, when Never Hike Alone came out, it set a new precedent for saying, listen, all of the tools that we need as filmmakers to tell a comprehensive and cinematic story are at our fingertips right now. And if you can come up with a story and you can get some really good visual effects and you can get somebody to play a good Jason in your film, then you might be able to reach the Friday the 13th audience because they are so starved for material. They'll basically watch anything at this point. If it's got a hockey mask on it, they're going to show up. And I think so now we've seen, you know, countless fan films come out, some better, some worse, and, you know, all, you know, all an applauded effort by fans who are coming together and, and trying to do the best for the franchise. And it's put me in contact with lots of filmmakers from around the world. Like I got to work on the Jason Rising project. I don't know if you guys have seen that one yet. Yeah, I just saw. Um, I I hadn't seen it, but I just uh, was looking at the Womp Stomp YouTube page, and I saw that mm -hmm. that came out. Um, and you were a mm -hmm. producer, correct? Yeah, I was a producer, co-writer. Yeah, um, and I play. I have a I have a bit part in the film as well okay. as Officer Playboy. <laughs> so let you figure out. <laughs> so um, yeah, so that was made by good friends of mine, and um, and you'll see why when you watch the film. Uh, the uh some good friends of mine carl winery and, and james sweet um who i met through this you know they're big fans of friday of, of never hike alone and obviously they're big fans of friday the 13th and they were making their own film and never hike alone had had a success so they reached out well we reached out to each other i think just as mutual like hey really like what you're doing and you know if you ever have any questions just let me know and you know if you have ever any questions turn into hey i think i have some ideas for your movie um you're looking for a co-writer like I can come up and help out. And so like, yeah. I went up to Portland for over the span of two years, like through the pandemic, everything. Um, and we ended up making this uh, crazy Friday the 13th movie, uh, which is just like, you know, ours is, like I said, a retcon from everything from one to eight. Like this is the new Friday the 13th part nine. Uh, theirs is a retcon to everything one to four. So okay. like, it's basically a new sequel to the final chapter that doesn't go the, um, universal monsters route like tom mclaughlin did but it takes it more of a sam Raimi, evil dead um <laughs> nice kind of wackadoo kind of world um which is cool which i'm not going to spoil anything right now because it's in the trailers but the, the big kind of core draw to jason rising would draw me to the project was the fact that not only does jason rise from the grave to continue his killing spree but he's actually risen from the grave by his mother as her own undead corpse undead 
undead headless corpse that comes back from the dead to raise her son from the dead and they both go on a killing spree oh, nice. um, wow. which i was like i don't know how you guys are going to do this but i want a front row seat <laughs> i want to be there when this happens <laughs> On a killing spree? No, it's Jason and his mother's body with no oh, head heart. running around. No. The oh. body comes. It's like evil. That's why I said it's like evil dead. The head is there too. The head, the head is around. Yeah. But for the most part, her body is walking around without a head on it. Okay. And so a lot of, again, like people like take it way too seriously. They're like, wait, how how does how does the body move? And it's like, why are you questioning these things? Yeah, Just come on. It. <laughs> yeah it doesn't have to be logical we're not looking for yeah. logic too much here <laughs> That's yeah, yeah so it's, it's very it, to me it was very entertaining it, unlike never hike alone and never hike in the snow it was definitely centered around like big body count uh there's stories about us it's like set in you know modern day wessex county many years after the final chapter and a set of wessex county uh convicts from the corrections farm escape the farm and end up hiding out in camp crystal lake so they can escape and, and make their escape of course okay. that raises jason and his mother from the dead and this set of um basically a team of the local sheriff and his deputy and a set of federal marshals are going in to root out these criminals and end up sort of stumbling into a little bit bigger of a of a, of a case than they, they originally intended and i always said that it was a great sort of callback to more of a predator so it's sort of like predator meets friday the 13th we have the cops going in they're a very focused team they have a very specific goal but when they get there the goal changes mm. all of a sudden it's not about the mission anymore it's about this bigger entity that's there that that's now hunting them down and they get right, out of the woods right. before they're all taken out one by one okay yeah i see the connection there yeah um all right, yeah, definitely gonna have to watch that. I I saw it on the YouTube channel and I was like, "What's this? This is this is different." Um, so yeah, definitely gonna watch that. Um, so okay, Womp Stomp. Um, just a couple more questions for you. Mm -hmm. So Womp Stomp, what is that? Where'd that name come from? Uh, Womp Stomp is based off of uh, basically a cheat code from an old uh, Star Wars game. I think it was. Star Wars Battle something um, for Nintendo 64, and the, the cheat code was Wampa Stompa. And so you type in Wampa Stompa and you become <laughs> the ice creature from Hoth, and you would break out of the cage in the level and just run around and start smashing stormtroopers. And so Wampa Stompa was a. Uh, was an internet handle that I used on like America Online when I first logged on. <laughs> that was my username, Wampa Stompa. And eventually, um, I went and see like then you know social media started to evolve. Uh, I got onto Instagram and Wampa Stompa wasn't available, and so I was trying different combinations of things. And what ended up coming up was something called Womp Stomp. And I was like, oh, Womp Stomp, Wampa Stomp, yeah, that all works. And so <laughs> I used that, and I used that mostly for my photography. Uh, and when I started to develop Never Hike Alone, I realized that it needed my own kind of like film handle. So I just added films to the end of it. It became Womp Stomp Films. And so that's where Womp Stomp Films came from. <laughs> All right. <Nice>. Cool. <laughs> um, you know, well, it's funny. Game, yeah. It's <laughs> funny. Like, usually it's stories like that where it's like something, something kind of silly that mm -hmm. turns into something cool. Yeah. yeah right. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. Uh, also, we've talked about uh, quite a few of the Friday the 13th films. But we haven't mentioned Freddy versus Jason. How do you feel about that? Because that's mm -hmm. one of my favorite horror films of all time. So you're a huge Friday fan. Okay. I want to know what you think of that one. I mean, it's sort of, I mean, for a Friday fan, it's, it's, it's fine. <laughs> it's sort of disappointing from the fact that I think that we all sort of 
like we expected Kane Hodder to be in the role. We didn't expect Jason to look like a giant homeless teddy bear. Um, <laughs> and, you know, and sort of when you go back and you watch the film, it's, it's very Scooby Dewey. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and sort of it's, it's, it's almost like it almost, I guess it needs to be a pop culture film, but at the same time, it sort of became such a pop culture film that it, it ruined any sort of the horror elements around it. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember like liking it when it first came out. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, I'll still enjoy it if it's on. It's just, I think, I don't know. It's just, <laughs> you know, I, I wanted to again, ask it, you. I think, you know, it's, it's a, I wanted to ask it's you. It's a film because... made by somebody who doesn't really understand Friday the 13th. Right. You can right. always tell like Ronnie Yu isn't right. like, doesn't seem like a big Friday fan. Yeah. Um, I think that, you know, I honestly, I, I do think the story is actually pretty brilliant. Um, mm-hmm. The fact that, you know, um, Freddie uses Jason to sort of get himself back into the minds of the people of Springwood. Um, I thought that part was cool. I thought a lot of that was good. I just felt that tonally um, it just starts to really dip in a lot of places. And, and especially going back and watching, it feels really dated. Yeah. Uh, the fact that they put a Destiny's Child in it, um, <laughs> I just, it's, it's insulting. It's insulting. Uh, it's, you know what I mean? Like we can't even take it seriously. And yeah. I feel like it just sort of like, those are the things that sort of kind of take away from films. Um, and they, like I said, they become like a, almost becomes like a like a studio joke in a way right. versus like what the fans actually wanted um but at the same time like you know i can't pretty happy with the results <laughs> pretty happy <laughs> you know that jason sort of kind of you know there was a good fight there's some cool things it was it was just an odd it was just yeah. a totally odd film for friday yeah. the 13th and even nightmare on the street but there are certain elements that are pretty cool um not not a huge fan of jason being scared of water even if it's in a dream yeah, sequence yeah yeah um, just you know there's just certain things that sort of like that bug me about it but it's i mean it's definitely a fun film i mean that, yeah. that's the best best way i can describe it yeah i would say i have more fun watching jason x okay um, just because i know what i'm getting into and the expectations are so low that it's really hard <laughs> to like yeah to like let me down i feel like <laughs> i i loved I love Freddy vs. Jason when it came out, and I think the more I watched it over the years, the the less rewatch factor it had. The more I watched it, I think. Okay, yeah, I wanted to ask you about that because, um, you know, I feel like a lot of Freddy fans like it, and then a lot of mm-hmm. Jason fans are a little, you know, turned off by it because it it to me it feels more like a Nightmare on Elm Street film. I feel like Freddy mm-hmm. is kind of more of the at the forefront. And Jason's kind of more of like just the tool that Freddy is using. Um, yeah, and, and so it doesn't. Even though Jason gets all the kills. Yeah, 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 but it just it doesn't do Jason <laughs> justice, you know. And then he's kind of like a hero yeah, really, too. It, <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean that's fine. Like you know, they wanted to make him sympathetic, and I think that part of it too. Um, sort of the other part of it too it was like yeah it was like it was comical you know what i mean yeah. like even the deaths were comical yeah yeah they it were. wasn't like oh my god i'm shitting my pants right now like everything was sort of like a joke it was closing the guy in the bed and stabbing him a bunch of times and oh hey dad and then his head pops off out of nowhere and it's like man this is this is like silly as fuck like the hell is going on you know, it wasn't like oh my god jason's like you know even when J- the way jason moved and the way he looked yeah. it was yeah. I, you know for me like jason the way he looks is like 90 percent of the movie yeah like if jason doesn't look 
extremely scary. Like part six, he looks scary as hell in most of that film. Yeah. Um, you know, even with the big yellow mitts, like it doesn't matter. Like it, there's something about Jason, the, the stature and the way that it's like, oh my God, if you get in the path of this thing, he's going to rip you to shreds. He literally ripped that dude's heart out of his chest. <laughs> like I'm scared. Like he yeah. will get me, yeah. you know, like part seven, like he will hunt me down like part four like he's coming through the door there's no yeah. stopping him like yeah. all that stuff like they have even part eight to a certain degree like there's still a good look to them yeah um and there's this sense that they're always gonna and like you don't want to get in contact with them like i wasn't scared of the jason that was in freddy versus jason right like, i was sort of like let like every time he's on screen i'm like oh man he looks so goofy <laughs> like, oh that mask looks weird <laughs> yeah he's, he's kind of more of so, a it was like when i start to more of like a robotic zombie Jason in, uh, yeah, in Freddy just, versus yeah, Frankenstein. Yeah. I mean, it was definitely yeah. a big Frankenstein um, sort of look to him. And it wasn't like Frankenstein from parts six, the yeah. way that sort of like CJ sort of brought that intensity because he was so powerful. Right. He just didn't have any power behind him. Yeah. Even though like he would touch Freddy and he'd go flying like 50 <laughs> feet across the camp. Like that, <laughs> that was there. Uh, you know, we took a little bit of like a nod. There's actually a nod to Freddy versus Jason Never Hike Alone when um, Jason backhands uh, yep. Kyle and goes yep. flying through the air. <laughs> so there's a little bit like, I mean, there, I mean Jason, they did do it. They did do a good job with the stunt work and stuff like that. But I think, um, yeah, I think fans, when they thought about Freddy versus Jason, when I first, when I first started talking about it in the eighties, that they were thinking about something a little bit more darker yeah. and, yeah. you know, it was got made in 2003 and it was the world where, you know, the studio system really took over all that stuff and it became a you know 60 million dollar production versus a, right you know some type of horror film that was a little bit more in the horror world it was made for a bigger audience yeah oh absolutely um yeah i love that movie <laughs> but uh it's fun and silly but yeah it's <laughs> it's definitely um up there for uh well for both um, uh, franchises, actually, yeah, <laughs> for me, but yeah. So, um, okay, Joel, did you have any more questions for Vinny here, or are we gonna call it um, a day? So, you said that you're working on Never Hike Alone two. Do you have um, mm -hmm. estimated year? I guess is when that's <laughs> you're planning. I mean, the, the goal would be this year. Um, this year, oh. I mean, the goal would be for October thirteenth this year. Um, okay. And so we're okay. finishing up the Ghost Cut Blu-rays right now. That's sort of one of the things I'm working on while I'm home. Um, then we'll step into a fundraise for Never Hike Alone Two. Um, that will be that will be sort of the determination of to okay. see how much we raise to see what we can actually do. Um, then we would shoot it over the summer. We would put it together by you know early fall and then release it like on the five year anniversary of Never Hike Alone on October thirteenth, two thousand and seventeen. Uh, I mean, in 2022, and it would be that would be the final entry, and that would be it. And then I'd be able to sort of, you know, walk away from Friday the 13th telling my complete story and mm -hmm. not having to ask the studios for a single damn thing. Yeah. Wow. All right. Awesome. That'll be a really That'd cool week to get a. That and uh, Halloween ends in the same yeah. week. <laughs> yeah, that'd yeah. be great. <laughs> um, okay, awesome. Well, we will be contributing to this fundraiser whenever it comes mm -hmm. uh, to be, so you can uh, count on that for sure. Yeah. Um, 
All right, cool. Well, it was great talking with you. Uh, I think me and Joel both learned things about Friday the 13th that we didn't previously know. Yeah, um, no, you, I learned quite a bit. <laughs> <laughs> you have quite a wealth of knowledge of this franchise, so yeah. appreciate that. Um, yeah, I'm okay. a pretty big nerd when it comes to this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, well, and did, something I, I did want to say before we end... Um, you were talking about like all your friends that were working on it and you know you got some of the bigger names from the franchise to help you out with it and you're you're you worked on jason rising with some other people you know i feel like the horror community is just kind of like that you know we we want to help each other Mm -hmm. out and Mm -hmm. you know we've had some people on our podcast you know that we didn't think we'd be able to talk to and but just everybody the love of horror is what trumps everything i think and so totally yeah so that's just uh, there's no other genre that can do that <laughs> yeah, and uh so I would it's, say, yeah, it's I would really say cool. that, like definitely horror sci-fi like there's definitely those there's a lot of um there's a lot of com- community in this yeah in, in this sort of genre um and you know you feel it when you go to the conventions like i never used to go to conventions and i didn't start going to conventions until after never hike alone and um, you know, I really feel like I was missing out. I, I feel like I, I've met a community of people that um, that we all get along. You know? Yeah, I mean, we all have similar upbringings. We all have similar. We all have similar childhoods. We all got into horror movies way too early, and we love them. <laughs> and we love to talk about it. And you know, and, and what's really cool about horror films is that, like, or horror fans, I should say, is that like when you talk to a horror fan, it's, it's not like all they talk about is horror films. Like, sure. yeah, we do, but we can talk about any show. Like, we're just fans of film. Right. And yeah. it's so funny that the biggest fans of film happen to be sort of horror fans as well because those films are so out there that only a <laughs> lover of film could love them. Yes. <laughs> like, the yeah. normal people sort of look at them and go, like, what is this stuff? And it's like, you just realize that it's sort of this great playground for yeah. both as a filmmaker and as a consumer to say, like, this is where I'm going to go watch the wildest shit I'm ever going to see. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. That's, that's a good way to put it. Yeah. Um, all right, Vinny, we're going to let you go. Um, thank Appreciate you. Thank it. you again for coming on. Uh, we'll probably reach out to you later and, uh, hopefully get you, uh, to talk about never hike alone too, you know, later on after that comes out. And, um, yeah. So, uh, Sounds like a plan. Okay, awesome. Well, we're going to sign off here. Uh, this has been our interview with Vincent DeSanti, and this has been Scare Talk. Sleep tight. Don't let Vinny bite. <laughs> <laughs> That's how we end them all. Watch out, so, though. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs>